everybody, welcome back to the show, Science Dispatch Podcast, episode 35. My name is Cameron English. I'm your host as always, joined again by Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, Director of Medicine at the American Council on Science and Health. Chuck, what's going on? Uh, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. I don't know if you've been following the weather, but we had some horrifically cold weather the other day. And where I live, the wind blows and uh, it was it was brutal. And now it's 50 degrees. So God only knows what's going on with the winter here in the Northeast. Are you going to be one of those older gentlemen that moves down to Florida for the sake of your bones? No. No? No. No. <laughs> I, I, you know. I, I will occasionally visit some other people that have already snowbirded themselves down there, but uh, I, I just don't see uh, living in Florida. <laughs> Not your scene. No. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, let's jump into the stories we're going to talk about today. First one is how scientific is, quote, peer-reviewed science? And then we're going to do another story, this one by uh, our colleague, Dr. Bloom, who uh, sadly wasn't able to join us. This is called... People worry hysterically about low-risk carcinogens, and then they drink, which, of course, as we'll get into alcohol, uh, is very much a carcinogen. But first up, uh, Chuck, let's talk about this peer-review article. This is by our, our colleague, Dr. Henry Miller, and he's talking here about what may surprise a lot of people, which is that the peer-review process is a little sketchier and, in some cases, even corrupt, and, and I don't think a lot of people know that. So what was your take on this? Um, I, I, I had the same feeling, except I've known it for some time. There are a lot of uh, very misaligned incentives in the, um, the world of science publications. Um, the old phrase used to be publish or perish, and that, that's where the misalignment begins. In order to um, work your way towards a a tenured position at a university, you need to publish a, a, a body of research. And over time, they've gotten to be a little bit more sophisticated about what can constitutes an acceptable journal for that. But the concept that if you don't publish, then you will not get tenure and you will find yourself as the adjunct faculty um, still pertains. So there's a, there's a big incentive on the part of junior faculty um, to write papers and to get papers accepted. There are other ways in addition to burnish your resume and your, or your, your CV. So when the tenure and promotion committee looks at it, um, it looks favorably upon you. And that is being a peer reviewer for a journal. So a lot of junior faculty sign up to do peer review of articles in addition to trying to turn out research. The difficulty uh, in, well, let, let's put it a different way. Um, when we wind up debunking uh, a scientific article, it can take us eight, nine, 10 hours to really dig into it and go back into the citations and, and, and look at um, the narrative being presented. And it is very difficult for a member of the full-time faculty who's doing his research to put aside eight or ten hours every month to look at one, two, or three articles um, that he's getting from a journal. So that, that's a problem right there. Yeah, very much misaligned incentives. 
Um, and Henry gives a few specific examples. The big one is um, uh, a pretty major academic publisher. They're called Hindawi. They're a subsidiary of John Wiley and Sons, which is one of the big boys yes. in academic publishing. But apparently, recently, they had some 500 papers withdrawn from their various journals uh, because they discovered, or, I, or they suspect, I don't know if it's been proven yet, but there were allegedly rings of... Uh, journal editors and reviewers and even scientists who are publishing studies um, who are collaborating and letting fraudulent articles through the peer review process so they could pad their resumes like Chuck was just talking about. So Exactly. And there's, there's some misaligned incentives on the publisher's side too, which we, we, we should mention. Um, publishing scientific journals is a very lucrative business. The margins um, are at about 20%, which is unbelievable uh, when you consider that the margin uh, for, say, a grocery store or a restaurant is 1%. Um, the journals are collecting a huge amount of money, and because peer review is a resume builder, they get a lot of free labor. So they have an incentive to... Um, publish a lot of articles. They also have an incentive to create new journals uh, in part because um, science gets to be more and more specialized, but also in part because more journals means uh, more possible income. And when you have more journals, you need more articles to fill them. And so maybe the standards for what's acceptable uh, begin to decline. The other piece that I, that I find interesting is that Oftentimes, uh, researchers will um, present the same data with a slightly different narrative or viewpoint to, and have it published in two or three journals over the course of three months as different material. So that, that contributes to the problem. And the other piece that, I, th that I, I think we don't think about a lot is that the costs and the labor behind doing original research, and now I'm talking about um, not basic science, not looking at cells, but you know, looking at people, sociology, you know, healthcare writ large, those kind of things. That's very expensive to do, and it takes a long time to get those studies done. So a lot of what's being published is based on surveys or meta-analysis, or it's um, data diving into established um, databases that already exist. And all of those are fraught with statistical problems. And, and that adds to the issue because the, the, you know, the ugly truth of the matter is, is that um, for most papers, a statistician is brought in to do the statistics because none of the authors have a clue um, as to what the appropriate statistics are, let alone the peer reviewer that's going to look at yeah, that's very, very interesting to highlight that uh, just because there's a name on a paper doesn't mean they actually know the content that they've supposedly produced. <laughs> I, always find that, I always find that kind of amusing. Um, so it seems to me there's a few things you could do to at least try to fix this. One would be pay peer reviewers. Absolutely. And, and pay them enough so they have an incentive to catch mistakes because as of now – it's caught, or most of these mistakes or, or, or fraud, these cases of fraud, they're caught by data sleuths, as Henry calls them. These are just independent scientists or people who go through academic journals and they look for things that are wrong. And then they report it to a website like Retract Retraction Watch, or they report it to a major 
science news outlet. And that's really the only way we would discover this stuff. So it seems you could pay peer reviewers. It seems um, you could publish negative results or be willing to publish more negative results. That way you have researchers who will be less inclined, I think, to you know do data dredging and p-hacking and write anything to get some kind of a positive newsworthy result because yeah. then they might do a good study and go you know we didn't find anything but you know here's here's what we did so you know don't make the same mistake kind of a thing what do you think about that oh i i think you're you're absolutely correct and, it, and it's a problem that people don't publish negative things because um, that information doesn't become necessarily general knowledge and we have people repeating the same errors over and over again. And in, in addition, um, knowing that something doesn't work or doesn't happen can be useful. You, not everything that's um, couched in a positive uh, light is necessarily helpful. But if you if you look at some of these papers and, and, and the one that you, you we were emailing back and forth about vaping is a good example um, where they found some changes um, but they don't know what the changes mean, so they, they're trying to find some way to, 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 to put it in a light that, that shows, gee, there's something going on here. We need to do more work. Yeah, I, I could just go on for days about this. It's really, really frustrating to see what goes on because I, I see that where you have these these animal models where they're like oh we you know there's some there's some change at the cellular level and maybe this product now causes cancer like like there's there's those kind of leaps from really rudimentary experiment uh, experiments but then as you said and I've seen this too people will do a study where they feed rats grape supplement rats excuse me grape supplement and then um, they'll publish another paper based on the same experiment. And they're like, okay, but now we gave them a little bit less grape supplement. And now we've had this whole new study, right? So Exactly. You know. and, and, and if you think about it, it really gets back to, to publish or perish and the, the misalignment where um, the scientists have to create an increasing supply and um, – the manufacturers are driving a demand because it, it drives profits for them. Not the manufacturers, excuse me, the, uh, the journals uh, do that. And when you think about it, there's very little at this point um, that the journals are doing other than um, formatting uh, the articles and, and, and printing them. And, and to be honest, I, I don't know the last time uh, I opened a, a, an imprint journal. I think that everything has really moved into the, the digital age, and um, that's one of those lagging things <laughs> where the libraries are continuing to uh, support in-print journals. And I, 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 it's weird because I, I don't know anybody that uses them anymore. Yeah, it's a very good point. And again, many, many people may not know this, but these academic journals, they survive with library subscriptions. You have academic institutions that pay thousands of dollars uh, a year to gain access to, you know, like all of the Wiley and Sons journals, for example. And then that way the researchers and students have access to all this material. Um, but it's not like a normal magazine where, you know, someone pays you know, five bucks a month or 12 bucks a month, and then they get it in their mailbox. I mean, that happens a little bit, I'm sure, but that's not where the money is. I, I guess all that to say um, academic publishing is a really gross industry. It's like, it's like 
pornography, but sleazier. You know, it's like, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. The laborers in the industry really are almost incidental. They're just bodies that do the heavy lifting, you know, so yeah. to speak. And then there's a few people at the top that just make a boatload of cash. Exactly. Anyways, oh, there was one other final thing I was going to ask you before we move on to, to booze and cancer. As a physician, did you ever run into a situation where you would look at something in a journal and go, well, this is obviously wrong. I can't apply this to my practice. Or, or does that happen at all? Or do, does, do, does the medical profession just disregard most of this literature? Um, I don't know what the medical profession does. You know, I'm a surgeon, so unless it's an instruction manual, uh, <laughs> I'm not so sure that it necessarily pertains. I think, you know, that gets to this... Um, other quality about journals is that journals are an intermediate source in the time frame of looking at materials. Um, the latest and greatest is presented at national meetings or increasingly in the uh, monthly newsletters um, that the uh, professional societies send out to their membership talking about there's a study coming out you know talking about what's um at least germane for surgeons um that that's that's my area where i can speak uh with the greatest uh experience and expertise about um so journals typically are six to twelve months uh for the process of submitting an article and going through peer review and getting published. Now that's that time frame has gotten shortened somewhat um, because of COVID and the use of prepress, which has you know changed the, the picture entirely. Um, but journals tend to have uh, information that is starting to become the consensus. So for most practitioners, um, it's either nodding yes or nodding no to information uh, they already have. And then at the end of it are, are yearbooks and textbooks, um, which contain the settled science uh, uh, for a particular field, at least at the moment. We'll, we'll have to talk about the preprint thing some other time, because I, I think that there's been a lot of criticism of it, but I think it might be a benefit in the long run in that someone puts up a preprint of their study and then it's not just two or three reviewers that look at it. It's everybody who has an interest in that field. Yes. You know, so you will get some abuse. You'll get the media amplifying studies that shouldn't, that aren't ready for prime time, if you will. But you'll also get other experts and other academics will look at stuff and they'll go, well, you better fix this before you try to put this in any journal because this is garbage, <laughs> you know? So I don't know. There's trade-offs in any case. I guess the lesson is always just read this stuff with a flat assault nearby. You know, you just have to be skeptical until you can verify that what you're reading is accurate. Yes. Okay. Well, moving on, let's talk about, uh, I think it's one of everyone's favorite topics, Chuck, and that, of course, is alcohol. I'm drinking. And, yes. Yeah. Every, everybody likes it, although less and less, I find, as I get older. It's quality more than quantity. Well, yeah, and you you are in the right state for quality. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Nice cocktail after putting your sun down after a, a long bath routine. It's it's okay. It's, it's, we gotta stop right there. I'm getting very <laughs> concerned with the phrase "putting your sun down." 
<laughs> I understand it, but I think we have to find a different phrase to describe putting the child to bed. There you go. Yes, for the for the non-parents or for anyone that's looking for material to cancel me, let me be clear. My son is alive and well. <laughs> oh God, yes. After he takes a bath in the evening, which can be a stressful event, as any parent will tell you. Nice cocktail. It's a great, great, great unwind. Watch a show you've seen 18 times with the with the drink. It's a nice experience. In any case, though, um, what what our colleague Dr. Josh Bloom is talking about here is the fact that many people, whether they are just consumers or they're reporters or they, or they work in one of the advocacy groups that we that we attack all the time, they go on and on about um, minute chemical exposures, so BPA or pesticides or you know wh- whatever. Insert scary chemical here. They will tell parents, especially, to be worried about you know the chemicals in receipt paper or the chemicals in plastic containers. Um, or lead in baby food, as we've talked about recently. Um, and there's very little evidence that these exposures are harmful because, for one thing, you have you know a massive federal regulatory apparatus that's charged with looking at this stuff. And so for all their faults, and they are many, they do a relatively decent job of reviewing you know, the, the, the safety of the food supply and the safety of chemicals that are in consumer products and so forth. Um, and then you have groups like ACSH, with with the expertise to debunk a lot of the a lot of the bad science out there, so all that to say, there's very little reason to worry about some most of these chemicals, I should say. But then you have a lot of these same people who will take selfies at cocktail parties, and of course they've got alcohol in their hands. And alcohol, as Chuck, you're the physician here, so you can you can verify this for for people. Alcohol can be um, very very dangerous. You know, obviously in an acute sense, but chronically, you know, it can cause some very, very serious diseases if you abuse it. Um, so let's stop there. That's the premise of the article. What were your thoughts? Anything specific about this story? Well, first of all, alcohol is only a chemical to Josh, who is a chemist. <laughs> Everybody else, it's somewhere in the range of an acceptable sin to uh, a social lubricant. Um <laughs> And it's pitched in, in, in a different way uh, than the, the chemicals that we're frightened of uh, on a variety of reasons. First of all, it's natural. It comes from yeast, you know. Two, it's ancient. This is not something we just invented. Perhaps Everclear is, but alcohol has been around for a long long time every civilization has some form of fermented uh drink to have and i and i think that that gives it a um a different point of view than we get about talking about uh, uh bpa or you know the forever chemicals or any of the things that are uh have been invented in the last 150 170 years which are not natural and haven't stood the test of time, you know, and, and then you get back into that um, argument about nature uh, from the romantics of 1840. So I think that that's uh, a significant um, piece, especially the fact that um, people find it um, as a social lubricant. You're a little tense before going to a party, you have a, a drink and it kind of opens things up and people get to talk and, and things flow. So that's one difference. It's certainly um, 
has been associated with a lot of cancers, though to be fair, um, there's some other entanglements there. If you look at that list that Josh put forward, um, with the exception of the liver and the colon, they were all head and neck tumors, um, tumors of the mouth, the tongue, uh, the throat. And when you think about uh, the person that's a heavy drinker, the image that frequently will come to mind is sitting in a dark bar, smoking cigarettes and drinking. So now you have two carcinogens that there's no question that they're both carcinogens um, acting at once. And I think that's part of why you see a, a much higher incidence of head and neck cancers um, in, in this group associated with drinking. So that's, you know, the medical piece of it. The other <laughs> piece is that we, we don't really know what to do with it. Um, we've already tried prohibition, and that has not worked out really well. Um, and there's there was an interesting um, article coming out in the next week um, talking about the effect of... Um, prohibition um, on uh, media coverage. And in this case, they were looking at um, media in China and they were looking at um, the prohibition on the sale of ivory. Uh, and the Chinese use, have used a tremendous amount of ivory uh, culturally and in their art. And what was I found interesting was is that when they presented the material back in 2016 as that there's now a worldwide prohibition on ivory, which is all to the best uh, on behalf of the elephants, um, all the media articles um, talked about uh, the cultural value of ivory and why it's precious and why we should continue to have it. Fast forward to 2019 and they were selling ivory that had been culled and taken by poachers and they were now selling because there was excess ivory. And all of a sudden the articles flipped 180 degrees. And now is it, why are we dealing with ivory at all? You know, ivory is bad. This is uh, this whole process of taking ivory from elephants is detrimental to the ecology of the planet. Just to flip just on the basis of whether um, the substance of interest going back to alcohol, was prohibited or not. And I think you see the same thing. We've certainly seen the same thing with uh, marijuana. There's, there's, a, there's something about the forbidden that everybody wants. It's a fascinating aspect of human psychology. And I think it goes to an important point, which is that when it comes to these public health issues, there's a lot of other factors that influence how we think about them. You know, It's not that uh, Senator so-and-so sits down for a lovely evening of, uh, you know, non-alcoholic beer and reading through the latest uh, issue of Science Magazine, right? It's like there's, there, you know, in the political sense, there's constituents, there's money being thrown around, yes, there, you know, cultural baggage, right? So it's like we're not really having a scientific discussion here. And maybe another aspect, and Chuck, you briefly touched on this, is that people love drinking. You know, people recognize, and correctly in my mind, that, you know, you can have a little bit of alcohol, uh, and, you know, don't drive, don't abuse it, and it, it can be enjoyed safely, you know. So I guess the way to put it would be we should treat all of these chemicals, 
or at least the ones that are safely used, we should treat all of them like alcohol and recognize that, yes, in a high enough dose, in the right circumstances, they can be dangerous, but we don't use them in those contexts. We use them where they're appropriate and life goes on. Yeah, you know, we're back to everything in moderation, you know, and uh, that's that's oftentimes difficult. Now, there's also, you know, it's it's fair to say that the disinhibiting qualities of alcohol uh, vary from person to person, and that for some people, alcohol is not a good choice of drugs. It makes them socially not good people for, you know, any number uh, of reasons. So, uh, you know, that's that's usually the, the rap on alcohol. They, they don't usually talk about the the health aspects of it, even though alcohol probably kills far more people than um, other things that we do. True enough. True enough. So there you go. Be skeptical of what you read in the headlines and uh, be moderate when you consume alcohol and uh, you will be a little bit of a better person for that. <laughs> and now the other thing, just, just to throw it in, is you know they've, they've asked physicians to, to ask about drug use as part of the, you know, annual examination. And um, so I, you get asked about alcohol. We have asking my 80 year olds about whether they're smoking pot yet. Um, <laughs> so, but it, I've never told the truth if they ask me how much I drink because I ain't telling them. <laughs> and, and I don't think I'm alone there. You know, I, I, I think everybody minimizes, uh, how much drinking they do, because especially when a doctor's asking, he's going to write it down. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be, in, 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 as we say, in your permanent record. <laughs> <laughs> so that's going to have an effect down the line when we start using these electronic health records to look at um, the health problems associated with alcohol, because we ain't going to be getting truthful information that's in there. We'll have the information that they have, but it ain't going to be the truth. It's a great point. And it's funny. I got a call from the state of California yesterday, just out of the blue, uh, urging me to get a COVID booster. And uh, they knew everything about me. I, I guess healthcare providers shared this kind of information with the state, which is, I guess, typical, you know, but they knew because I've been, I've been vaccinated. So they knew which shots I got. They knew when I got them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then they said, well, here, let's set an appointment for you, you know? Right. And despite my 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 very vocal support for vaccination, it kind of pissed me off that this guy whom I didn't know knew all this information about me and was pressuring me to go do something in the middle of my workday. It just rubbed me the wrong way, you know? Exactly. And I'm, by the way, they also know which arm you got the injections in. Do they really? Yes, because they write it down. It's part of, <laughs> it was part of what the CDC wanted. You know, earlier when they were giving the injections, they wanted to know which arm. And, you know, remember that when we had us hang around for 15 minutes? Right. You know? Because yeah, that's I, when most of the bad reactions were going to take place. Sure, sure. It, it makes sense that they would record that. I, it was just strange to me, you know, yeah. that some guy who didn't even give me his name, or maybe he did, I don't remember. Let's call him Fred, you know. Fred had all this personal information about me, yes. and it, it made me mad. And even when I told him, I was like, look, I have a healthcare provider. I have a doctor I'm on good terms with. I can go get this myself. Thank you. Now I'm going to go back to work. And he's like, oh, well, is there a reason you don't want to do it? It's like, just stop, dude. Just, qu-, you know, so all that to say, people are, are jealous of their privacy and their autonomy. And so that's another important aspect of this. But um, 
All that to say, just a little bit of moderation goes a long way. Chuck, thank you as always for joining me. And My pleasure. Thank you to everyone who is uh, who's listening. We're we're uh, we're watching the numbers tick upwards, and it's awesome that people are are seeming to get some benefit out of this podcast. So, if you want to get the stories we talk about, you just go to the website acsh.org, subscribe tab up at the top, click on that, punch in your email, and then three times a week we'll send you the stories we publish. The ones you read the most are the ones we talk about. So if you read the stories and then you come here, you're going to know in advance what we're talking about. You'll be a little bit smarter. And with that, we will see everybody next week for episode 36. Take care.